What are the critical and creative ideas being written about today? Where do we find them? How do we make sense of them? And what do they mean for us in the decisions we make individually and as a society? My name is Benjamin Miller, and this is Inverse Converse. In each episode, I invite a guest to highlight a recent piece of writing, which is special or extraordinary in some way, and about which my guest has some special expertise. So I'm talking today with my friend and college classmate, Melanie Langer. Hi, Melanie. Hi. And um, Melanie is a PhD candidate, not her first advanced degree, but maybe it'll be her last. I intend for it to be my last. Um, so my background is that I, in college, I focused on philosophy, uh, especially moral psychology and ethics. And then I did my master's in essentially French sociology um, with an empirical thesis on the relationship between language and thought. And then after working in New York on some activist nonprofit work, as well as some consulting, I've now started a PhD at NYU, um, doing a PhD in social psychology, specifically in moral and political thought in the social justice lab. And we are talking today about How the Language Police Are Perverting Liberalism by Jonathan Chait. Around 2 a.m. on December 12th, four students approached the apartment of Omar Mahmoud, a Muslim student at the University of Michigan, who had recently published a column in a school newspaper about his perspective as a minority on campus. The students who were recorded on a building surveillance camera wearing baggy hooded sweatshirts to hide their identity littered Mahmoud's doorway with copies of his column, scrawled with messages like, you scum embarrass us, shut the fuck up, and, in all caps, do you even go here? Leave. They posted a picture of a demon and splattered eggs. This might appear to be the sort of episode that would stoke the moral conscience of students on a progressive campus like Ann Arbor. And it was quickly agreed that an act of biased intimidation had taken place, but Mahmoud was widely seen as the perpetrator rather than the victim. His column, published in the school's conservative newspaper, had spoofed the culture of taking offense that pervades the campus. Mahmoud satirically pretended to denounce, quote, a white cisgendered hetero upper-class man who offered to help him up when he slipped, leading him to denounce, quote, our barbaric attitude toward people of left-handedness. The gentle tone of his mockery was closer to Charlie Brown than to Charlie Hebdo. The Michigan Daily, where Mahmoud also worked as a columnist and a film critic, objected to the placement of his column in the conservative paper, but hardly wanted his satirical column in its own pages. Mahmoud later said that he was told by the editor that his column had created a hostile environment in which at least one daily staffer felt threatened, and that he must write a letter of apology to the staff. When he refused, the daily fired him, and the subsequent vandalism of his apartment served to confirm his status as thought criminal. The episode would not have shocked anybody familiar with the campus scene from two decades earlier. In 1992, an episode along somewhat analogous lines took place, also in Ann Arbor. In this case, the offending party was the feminist videographer Carol Jacobson, who had produced an exhibition documenting the lives of sex workers. The exhibition's subjects presented their profession as a form of self-empowerment, a position that ran headlong against the theories of Catherine McKinnon, a law professor at the university who had gained national renown for her radical feminist critique of the First Amendment as a tool of male privilege. McKinnon's beliefs nestled closely with an academic movement that was then being described by its advocates as well as its critics as political correctness. Michigan had already responded to the demands of pro-PC activists, by imposing a campus-wide speech code purporting to restrict all manner of discriminatory speech, only for it to be struck down as a First Amendment violation in federal court. I'll skip ahead a bit here. After political correctness burst onto the academic scene in the late 80s and early 90s, it went into a long remission. Now it has returned. Some of its expressions have a familiar tint, like the protesting of even mildly controversial speakers on college campuses. You may remember when 6,000 people at the University of California, Berkeley, signed a petition last year to stop a commencement address by Bill Maher, who has criticized Islam, along with nearly all the other major world religions. 
or when protesters at Smith College demanded the cancellation of a commencement address by Christine Lagarde, managing director of the International Monetary Fund, blaming the organization for, quote, imperialist and patriarchal systems that oppress and abuse women worldwide. Also last year, Rutgers protesters scared away Condoleezza Rice. Others at Brandeis blocked Ayan Hirsi Ali, a women's rights champion, who was also a staunch critic of Islam. And those at Haverford successfully protested former Berkeley Chancellor Robert Bergenau, who was disqualified by an episode in which the school's police used force against Occupy protesters. At a growing number of campuses, professors now attach trigger warnings to texts that may upset students, and there is a campaign to eradicate microaggressions, or small social slights, that might cause searing trauma. These newly fashionable terms merely repackage a central tenet of the first PC movement, that people should be expected to treat even faintly unpleasant ideas or behaviors as full-scale offenses. Stanford recently canceled a performance of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson after protests by Native American students. UCLA students staged a sit-in to protest microaggressions, such as when a professor corrected a student's decision to spell the word indigenous with an uppercase I. One example of many, quote, perceived grammatical choices that in actuality reflect ideologies. A theater group at Mount Holyoke College recently announced it would no longer put on the vagina monologues in part because the material excludes women without vaginas. These sorts of episodes now hardly even qualify as exceptional. Trigger warnings aren't much help in actually overcoming trauma. An analysis by the Institute of Medicine has found that the best approach is controlled exposure to it, and experts say avoidance can reinforce suffering. Indeed, one professor at a prestigious university told me that just in the last few years, she has noticed a dramatic upsurge in her students' sensitivity toward even the mildest social or ideological slights. She and her fellow faculty members are terrified of facing accusations of triggering trauma, or more consequentially, violating her school's new sexual harassment policy merely by carrying out the traditional academic work of intellectual exploration. Political correctness appeals to liberals because it claims to represent a more authentic and strident opposition to their shared enemy of race and gender bias. And of course, liberals are correct not only to oppose racism and sexism, but to grasp, in a way conservatives generally do not, that these biases cast a nefarious and continuing shadow over nearly every facet of American life. Since race and gender biases are embedded in our social and familial habits, our economic patterns, and even our subconscious minds, they need to be fought with some level of consciousness. The mere absence of overt discrimination will not do. Liberals believe, or ought to believe, that social progress can continue while we maintain our traditional ideal of a free political marketplace where we can reason together as individuals. Political correctness challenges that bedrock liberal ideal. While politically less threatening than conservatism, the far right still commands a far more power in American life, the PC left is actually more philosophically threatening. It is an undemocratic creed. The PC style of politics has one serious, possibly fatal drawback. It is exhausting. Claims of victimhood that are useful within the left-wing subculture may alienate much of America. The movement's dour puritanism can move people to outrage, but it may prove ill-suited to the hopeful mood required of mass politics. Nor does it bode well for the movement's longevity that many of its allies are worn out. Quote, it seems to me now that the public face of social liberalism has ceased to seem positive, joyful, human, and freeing, confessed the progressive writer Freddie DeBoer. There are so many ways to step on a landmine now, so many terms that have become forbidden, so many attitudes that will get you cast out if you even appear to hold them. I'm far from alone in feeling that it's typically not worth it to engage, given the risks. End quote. Goldberg wrote recently about people, quote, who feel emotionally savaged by their involvement in online feminism, not because of sexist trolls, but because of the slashing righteousness of other feminists, end quote. Former feministing editor Samita Mukhopadhyay told her, quote, everyone is so scared to speak right now. That the new political correctness has bludgeoned even many of its own supporters into despondent silence is a triumph. 
but one of limited use. Politics in a democracy is still based on getting people to agree with you, not making them afraid to disagree. The historical record of political movements that sought to expand freedom for the oppressed by eliminating it for their enemies is dismal. The historical record of American liberalism, which has extended social freedoms to blacks, Jews, gays, and women, is glorious. And that glory rests in its confidence in the ultimate power of reason, not coercion, to triumph. That, again, was not a very PC thing to say, How the Language Police Are Perverting Liberalism, by Jonathan Chait, published in New York Magazine in January. I wanted to start off by maybe playing devil's advocate for a minute, because um, I think this article is... Uh, takes a bit of a one-sided perspective, right? It's pretty clear where Jonathan Chait stands on the issue of political correctness. He's against it. Uh, he is against the... Uh, he is against the use of being offended as a, a tool of argument. Um, but there are certainly instances where the kind of social media scrutiny that Chait is complaining about seem to serve some kind of a useful purpose, right? So, for example, I want to mention the case of the Oklahoma fraternity from a little while back now, SAE, where a video surfaced of uh, members of this fraternity in a bus uh, chanting, not just, I mean, it would be an understatement to say they were making racist remarks. These were not just uh, bits of offensive language. These were comments. These were really threats. I mean, explicitly racist threats of violence. And my sense is that if this had happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago, the backlash would have been slow if there was any at all. Um, the way that things happened in this case was the video went viral. It was covered immediately by newspapers and blogs. And within a day, I believe it was, I believe it was the morning after this incident surfaced. Uh, that morning, the National SAE Fraternity Organization uh, immediately announced that those uh, that the chapter was going to be shut down. Can I jump in while I have a couple of thoughts Please. in mind? So, one is about the idea of something being offensive and what that means, um, and whether that's a valid criterion or a, uh, a desirable, a useful one. Um, and the other is um, about an article that another of our classmates wrote recently, um, Alex Schwartz, um, on Monica Lewinsky and shaming. Uh Um, And when people focus on being offended, usually it leads to a a reaction, a, a positive reaction. I don't mean positive in terms of valence, I mean positive in terms of positive and negative reinforcement, which don't mean what most people think it, they mean it has to do with the presence or some, of something producing something as opposed to taking something away. Um, the, the result often of being offended is some action that is essentially a game. In Alex's article, she talks about the shame game. People seem to enjoy shaming other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they focus on blame. I think that blame is a totally unproductive concept um, or construct. Um, I think accountability is crucial. Um, And I think about these things in terms of utility, that I want the greatest good for the greatest number. I'm interested in what's going to produce that. I'm not interested in anything else. I'm not interested in people getting their just desserts. Um, I don't believe in the first place that people are ultimately in control of whether they're the capable of 
at a fundamental level of determining these things. I give people enough enough fundamental credit that I think if any if everyone could make ultimate choices for themselves, they would choose to be people who were good to others and who were happiest being good to others and that that's how they would behave. Obviously, that's not the way things are, but the things that make that not be, um, I, I don't ultimately ascribe to, to these individuals. And mostly, even if I thought someone did deserve blame, I'm much more concerned with the good of the person who has been or will potentially be harmed, particularly those who might be harmed. I'm, I'm always concerned with utility mm -hmm. and there's just not as much utility in uh, punishing someone when you have a finite amount of resources and those resources could be devoted to benefiting someone or other mm -hmm. people. So in other words, being offended isn't suffering. So, in other words, being offended uh, takes focus from what I think we should be paying attention to, which is what is good, what is bad, what is acceptable, Actual what is unacceptable. Arms. Right, and morality. And I think that these days we don't feel like we're entitled to have a morality anymore, in part because we're so worried about offending people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we get forced into relativism, even those of us who don't often think explicitly about ethics or ideology um, because we have a we have an intuitive aversion to hurting people we're, we're generally attuned to that that branch of ethics um, and we can see that when someone is offended that they're hurt that they're upset that we've done that we don't want to do that mm -hmm. we use it as a heuristic but we use it as a heuristic you know in the way that all heuristics work where they allow us to be lazy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also... This also this ties into the tendency toward infantilization, right? It's very easy when you start to use taking offense as the currency of your conversation to start to feel like you have an obligation to coddle the mm -hmm. subjects of your, of your discourse. Right, and then you get into the problem of, for example, benevolent sexism, where anyone who's being coddled isn't getting their due. Exactly. Exactly. So at the end of the day, there's some risk, I think, that you end up doing more harm to the people you're trying to avoid offending than, than good. Right. On the other hand, um, so I think part of the issue here is that shaming someone is a... I mean, it feels terrible to be shamed. Um, and certainly uh, people have been, as Alex writes about in her article, people are destroyed by that. Um, and I think it's a terrible thing, and I've already said I don't think that that should happen to anyone. Um, <clears throat> I certainly don't think it's productive. I think it's cruel. Um, but the other thing is that it it takes focus away from from the thing itself and puts it on this person, mm. which really allows the harm, that the unacceptable action, the immoral action, to remain at liberty to yeah. continue. Yeah. That's um, such a striking feature of this event with Justine Sacco, the famous tweeter of the the supposedly racist remark about uh, white people not being able to catch AIDS. And um, it seems like in the aftermath of that flurry, uh, you know, the, the tweet heard around the world, right, that um, there was a lot of conversation about how racist Justine Sacco might have been. There was a lot of conversation about how many other people might also be racist in the same way that Justine Sacco is racist? There was not a lot of conversation about actual harms being done by racist people against right. Africans or, or others suffering from AIDS. Or even by non-racist people. I mean, really, I don't, I don't care at all about one police whether one police officer is guilty of something or not. What I care about is that things that are wrong aren't done to people. Mm -hmm. So. I would be much more interested in taking all of those hours and all that money and all that effort that people put into these trials and put it into creating effective training programs um, to prevent this from happening. Mm -hmm. um, and, so and so I wanna, you think there are better ways to yeah, police? Our... I mean, and I want to make it clear that for me this is just an empirical issue. Or for, I don't know, there are other aspects, obviously, but what I'm talking about here is an empirical issue of what works best um, 
and and I am and I believe that accountability is a a key component of this, but in a mechanistic, not a moralistic way. I think that the morality, what's at issue in terms of morality is the behavior. Um, and it's, and the ethical consideration comes in at a first stage when you decide what you think is good, what you think is bad, um, preferably at a societal level. You decide what you're going for. And after that, it's, it's really no longer about morality. I mean, at least not in terms of retribution, because that doesn't play into it for me. For me, it's about this utility. So you decide what you want, and then it's just a question of what's going to make that happen. Um, most but isn't that the argument that um, uh, that would be made against Chait, or one argument that would be made against Chait here is to say that, in fact, this kind of aggressive public social pressure against people who are expressing views that seem to lead in some cases, to negative moral behavior, that um, that kind of social pressure is exactly the most effective no, way No, because it's obviously not effective at all. Look at what society is still like. We've been shaming each other for thousands of years. <laughs> well, but now we're shaming each other in much but more efficient shaming. ways. Right? No, we're not. I mean, this is no, so... No, no, because but, we focus on the wrong thing. Just like when you watch Gossip Girl, there's this, um, I think, interesting trend where whenever one of the female characters does something bad, um, they one of the characters refers to her using some usually antiquated term for slut. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> uh, there's no... Slut-shaming is completely irrelevant to whatever wrong has just been committed. Gender is completely irrelevant. Hmm. Um, this is one of the reasons that I have enjoyed watching this show, because I think it's interesting to see how... Uh, even in a show that was uh, such a fuss was made over for how not conservative it was, um, and that was so liberal and modern in some ways, um, that it contains such traditional values that they're they're insidious enough to be there, and you can see them change mm-hmm. over the years to a certain extent, and others not. Um, just like how in Brave New World. All the women are still nurses and all the doctors are still men. Because that one was just too, that was too much of a non-conscious ideology to to see around. Alternatives were unfathomable. But isn't that also one of the potential promises of social media shaming? Is that no? Because it's non-specific. Because people are not focusing. People are unwilling to engage in the kind of system challenge that is necessary to get these things to go away. And instead, they're Hmm. hiding behind shaming a bad apple. It's okay. not about a bad apple. It's about, for example, on the subway nowadays, they have those you know, unwanted sexual harassment mm-hmm. uh, or unwanted sexual conduct posters as PSAs. And at the end, it says something like, uh, reporting someone's actions lets violators know that their behavior is inappropriate. And I read that and I thought, the fuck, inappropriate? It's not like they're wearing seersucker in winter. It's immoral, it's disgusting, it's shameful, it's mean, uh-huh, it's stupid, uh-huh. it's a violation against a fellow human. It's but a crime. People, it, but beyond even a crime, a crime has to do with something that's wrong within the context of a particular human system. That is something that is wrong in a universal, absolute way, given the way humans are constructed. It's a fundamental, objective wrong. Okay, so the language could certainly be stronger. No, but it's not. But it's not a semantic issue, and it's not about strength. It's about accurate naming, and that is part of what we miss when we talk about offense. Because when you talk about offense, you're really misdirecting. You're saying this is bad. What you just did was bad because it made me feel ruffled and upset. Mm -hmm. That is not the point. The point is that someone did something that is not okay. Yeah. And these days, that kind of morality has fallen out of favor with all but maybe the extreme right. Um, And obviously, I don't agree with their ethical rules. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the left, I think we've, we've, and and then in the center, we've gotten confused by the difference between offense. So this, that uh, Ricky Gervais quote, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Some people are offended by mixed marriage, gay people, atheism, so what? Fuck them. People are so concerned with this, um, with whether 
some, with whether uh, it's like they're, they're having this, this Kantian problem of thinking that everything has to be universalizable, but without um, appropriate specificity. Mm. So, yes. I'm really glad it, you just brought Kant into this. <laughs> you can always count on me for that. Uh, so, intolerance, you say in, intolerance is, is bad, but then what about not tolerating intolerance? Mm -hmm. Is that, mm -hmm. do I have to tolerate intolerance? Am I being inconsistent and I say no just think about it right. <laughs> it's, it's, there's an I answer mean, there's a clear answer right and, I, and we're getting it's funny that we're talking about offense and I'm going to bring up this this quote but the you know the the pornography quote you know when you see it it's true that ethics are complicated and particularly on certain issues it can be difficult um, and certainly it can be difficult to reconcile people's mm -hmm. differing um, ethical systems but I think that in general we have a sense of when something is wrong and it really is irrelevant whether someone is upset or flustered or their panties are in a twist over it. That is so not the point and that is so not why someone should be punished and whether someone should be punished is irrelevant. Let's start by sorting out what we think is okay mm -hmm. and what isn't, mm -hmm. which is, seems to be an activity that no one wants to do or feels comfortable doing. And well, the way we decide whether we're okay with something is whether we are offended by it. Apparently. Yeah, that may be true. Um, and then people just are, are not protected when they should be because there's a fence on top of a fence, mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. was outlined in this article. And there was there's one an arms thing. race of being offended. Right. right? Um, and there was, so I, I wanted to bring up this universalizability issue. Um, just to, I wanted to, to make sure it was clear here that even this idea of diversity of, of opinion, you know, I think the, the great point that, that was made and that we should always retain is that every, every idea, every opinion, regardless of what it is or the source it comes from, deserves to be considered. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that every idea is equally okay. Right. You know, just well, and this is what makes Jonathan Chait's essay so intriguing particularly in the academic setting because academia is supposed to be the one place where ideas are all free where equal consideration is given to uh, all manner of thinking regardless of how unconventional it is regardless of how disturbing or upsetting it may be and so to see time and time again at least in these anecdotes that Chait uh, has noted to see the crushing of free thought but under so the I, thumb of but it should but immorality should be crushed i think we shouldn't get confused about hate speech versus genuine intellectual exploration well and this is why i wanted to talk specifically about the sae example because here we have a case where the speech that was produced that was recorded in this video by these fraternity brothers goes far beyond being offensive Right. It goes into right. the realm. Uh, I don't know if you saw the video. Um, I'm but, familiar. I didn't watch it, though. Okay. Yeah. I recommend... Not uh, watching it. <laughs> I recommend only doing that if you're in a particular mood. Um, <laughs> it's horrifying. I mean, they, they are chanting in celebration of racial violence. And uh, so this is the kind of language that I think we can all agree shouldn't be tolerated. Uh, I think it's, it's not just language, though. It's the whole belief. It's the whole feeling. That's what. So, this one of my no, one, one of my one of my great interests, you know, is parenting, and there's been a big shift in parenting, and I think that people have figured some things out over the years that are that are excellent. We've made some progress. Um, you know, being attuned to a child is very important. Having uh, allowing your child to have their feelings that's all important. Um, but helping them learn what limits exist in the world or should exist, helping them develop a moral and ethical system is important. And understanding that some things are not okay is important and is part of your job as a parent. Mm -hmm. And some of these things need to be curbed in childhood. And it's not, you're, you have to learn from your parent how to, with yourself as an adult, have a reaction that tells you this is not okay. This is a line that I don't cross. This is this is a fucked up thing that 
that I'm experiencing or that I'm thinking, and I need to go look into this so that I'm not a bad person. So I don't do things that I find immoral mm-hmm. and unacceptable and that are are unacceptable ways to behave towards my right. fellow humans. Parents often fail in this duty, though, and so sometimes it falls to society to enforce those norms. But when society does it, they talk about being offended and they attack people for things that are irrelevant when you know, the goodness or badness of the humanity of an individual is not what's at issue here. What's at issue is a set of beliefs and behaviors that we either societally condone or don't condone. And in the first place, and this also relates to good parenting and bad parenting, um, limits have to be clear in order to be responded to. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of confusion right now. A lot is tolerated. And just because you know one person's fired or because a lot of people get upset doesn't mean that the limit has become clear. It's a question of being acceptable or not acceptable. And that used to be a hard line in a household and in society. And those lines were mistakes often. And I mm-hmm. think that's where we've made mm-hmm. the most progress. We've we've stopped enforcing lines that should never have been enforced in the first place. However, we've also thrown out the entire concept of a line. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think things have gone really awry. Right. Yeah. But And so these lines are being continually redrawn by the mob in the forums of social media. Uh, and the result of that is that anyone who participates in social media has to aim at a moving target. You know, it's, it's often unclear for participants in public discourse what exactly it's appropriate or acceptable are, for them to say. Right. They're also responding to something at all as opposed to starting with themselves, uh, not as part of a dialectic, just engaging in some a priori reasoning about what they think is moral and immoral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting here that Jonathan Shate is no stranger to these kinds of scandals himself. He's been involved in a number of, well, he has certainly been accused on multiple occasions of saying insensitive things. And I think he's taken it very personally. Uh, as a commentator and a writer and a self-professed liberal, it's hard for him to feel criticized by his own camp, um, particularly when the criticism, as far as he is concerned, is completely misplaced. So I wanted to, to talk with you about this in particular because you, of course, have spent a good amount of time studying the influence of language on political thinking and political psychology. And I wonder, there's a certain innate satisfaction in the instantaneous response of outrage, right? To hear a phrase or a speech or to read an article or an essay that seems to be wrong in an offensive way and to respond to that by lashing out at it. It's intoxicating. It's Certainly, when I read an article that I find offensive, the temptation is great to go straight to the comment board, to go straight to Twitter, to go on a tirade about it, to tell my friends about the injustice that's being perpetrated by this callous writer or speaker. And it doesn't even matter that I haven't put thought into it. It doesn't matter that I haven't researched the context. It doesn't matter that I maybe don't understand fully the argument that's being made. It doesn't matter that maybe I've misinterpreted the comment that I'm reacting to. It still brings this rush of adrenaline and dopamine and a great sense of of unmitigated pleasure. So I think it can be almost addictive to to fall into this pattern of uh, of fighting artificial online battles over minutia. I think more than being intoxicating or gratifying, it's easy and it's safe. And I think that unfortunately you're attributing too much empowerment to people who are criticizing what they encounter and find offensive it's much easier to lash out at someone who wrote an article than to attack the structure or the system that's actually causing the problem. So and it's laziness. No, I don't think it's laziness. I think it's, um, 
self-preservation. I think so my my advisor's work is on system justification theory, which is the idea that people are motivated by three fundamental needs, existential, epistemic, and relational, to defend the status quo, even if it disadvantages themselves or others. And I think something I'm working on now is the idea that this fits in well with needs that are fundamental, motivations that are fundamental to a child within a family system. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially it's the implications of attacking the universe in which you live are obviously disastrous. Um, that is much more dangerous than attacking a single figure within that universe. You can take that figure down your world won't collapse. Mm. If you take down the world where he's supposed to live. Right. So if you just lash out, you can get as angry as you want with the person who wrote that article. That's very different than attacking the structure that's the bedrock of your existence. So I think what we're sort of dancing around the edge of here is the the notion that, well, Chait is really arguing uh, on two levels in this essay. I think one argument that he's making uh, is that we've become too sensitive as a society, that we've become obsessed with saying nothing that might make anyone uncomfortable. The other argument he's making, I think, has to do with the medium itself, that is social media, Twitter, Facebook, as conduits for this kind of social criticism. Right. And the two of those, both of those factors working in concert, I think, come together to create what sometimes can be a toxic environment. Sometimes. Uh, I try to stay away <laughs> from those environments myself. But um, So, so um, something you just said, particularly the first part, reminds me of something we mentioned earlier in this conversation with this idea of being coddled. Um, so this sensitivity, I mean, the fact is, and this is part of, again, what good parenting enables a, a, an adult human to do, um, which is not to respond within a pre-existing framework, but to feel like you have the right and the ability to create the environment, to affect the environment that you're in. I'm not suggesting that we all have control over this, because obviously that's false. Mm-hmm. Um, but this idea of responding with sensitivity, responding with hurt, it's, it's true that a lot of, a lot of things are, are very hurtful. Um, and certainly being discriminated against, particularly on the basis of group membership, is a very painful and disempowering experience. Absolutely. Um, and sometimes, particularly at a societal level, there's, there's nothing you can do about, about it on a broad scale in the moment. Um, but you can respond from a, you can try to respond from a position of power um, as opposed to one of sensitivity. When someone is offended, when someone is upset, it's indicative of being at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't mm-hmm. have hand if that's where you're striking from. Yeah. You're striking from below yeah. when you respond that way. Um, for example, when someone... And, and you're also... You're allowing the... You're begging the question of the acceptability of the thing. You know, you're allowing it mm-hmm. to be a question. Mm-hmm. When you have every right to have it in your mind be a given already. So when says when someone says something like that, I think the appropriate response is something more akin to no, period. Like yeah. a dog. Right. You know, right. or, or the, right. in my case, in my household, uh-uh. Like, <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's a joke. It's wrong. It's, this is not up for discussion yeah. whether this is okay or not. And it's irrelevant whether you think that I'm being irrational. Uh, there's no emotion that, it's not an emotional question. It certainly stirs up emotion, but that's, that's not the issue. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a moral question. So this, this gets into a feature of this uh, topic that I've been thinking about quite a lot, which has to do with persuasion versus coercion. And one of the points that, um, well, just at the very end of the essay, Chait says, and I read this before, but I'll read it again, Politics in a democracy is still based on getting people to agree with you, not making them afraid to disagree. The historical record of political movements that sought to expand freedom for the oppressed by eliminating it for their enemies is dismal. And um, 
essentially, I think the the effect of social media debates centering on the question of being offended as an indication of the wrongness of the comment that was made, the method of that argument seems to be not to convince the person who made the offensive statement to change his or her mind or to think differently about the issue, but rather to shame that person into never saying anything like that mm -hmm. again. Yeah. Right? And so it's not persuasion, it's coercion. I tend to agree with Chait that um, coercion is generally not the appropriate way to make ideological progress in a democracy. But now what you're saying is that when a, an offensive statement is made, uh, the appropriate response or the most effective response is not necessarily persuasion or engagement with no. that comment, but simply dismissal of it. Well, it, it depends. So, first of all, I think the kind of coercion that's going on is the wrong kind of coercion. Um, it shouldn't be. It also shouldn't be attacking the whole person because, as I've said, I think that's that's not a good route. Uh -huh. um, it's not about the whole person. It's not even about the person. Right. Uh, it's about so, behavior, which, by the way, will make it easier. A person can't change something fundamental to the person. If you say you're all, you know, if you say you're 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 bad through and through, that's you're not racist. Right. That's not. You're not leaving that person any room to change. We even know from from the psych literature, we know from Carol Dweck's work, that thinking about something as you know, a permanent given makes you a lot less able to work with it than thinking about it as something that you can change with effort over mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. um, so if we're trying to get these people to change, then we probably shouldn't be suggesting that what's wrong with them is inherent to them or is pervasive throughout their right, being. Right. Um, no one will ever respond positively no, to it's that. Just, it's an you're, you're, you're telling them, one, it's, one it's, it's hurtful, it's sad, it's all those things. It also is setting them an impossible task, yeah. and that is obviously yeah. demotivating. Yeah. Um, I mean, a tool would take on an impossible task, so right. why would you set them up not to do what you so want to do? So alienation is built into that right. line of conversation. Right. Um, so, you know, obviously the more, more effective thing is to just set it up as a behavior, and the easier you can make it sound, the better, and the more in line with the person's pre-existing values and concepts of themselves, the better. Mm -hmm. um, and then it, it's an easy thing for them to do. Obviously, you're going to meet with some resistance, and so then you get into, I think, when it's in terms of coercion versus persuasion. The coercion should be there are some things that are not okay, that will not be tolerated, that are not acceptable. Those behaviors are just not options. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not that you can do them, but they're they're bad, but you can do it. Well, you'll be in trouble. It's it's just not an option. Yeah. Um, yeah. The place for persuasion, and I think for letting these ideas be expressed, is when someone is motivated to change their minds, or when you're in a setting when it's appropriate to be shaping opinion. For example, when you're parenting, or when you're a teacher, um, or when you're having a an open conversation with a friend um, or or a stranger, but someone who is actually open to changing his or her mind. And the fact is, you have to express your pre-existing ideas and have them addressed in order for that change to happen. Mm -hmm. So I think in that case, we certainly, then people should be able to say, but then it's not filled with hate and it's not coming from an intention to harm. That's someone saying, this is my understanding of this and why it's wrong or bad or gross or whatever someone thinks. Um, you know, it, it, I feel like this is my experience that, you know, I've only ever met black people who were like this, so why is this thing not true? Yeah. And then you can address that and then the person can genuinely change their mind and they won't require societal limits um, of what's acceptable and what's not in order to behave in the way that we want people to behave. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but obviously that's a rarer occasion in everyday adult life. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. We've got some company. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you, so your, your advice then is think pragmatically. Yeah, that's generally my advice. First think morally and then think pragmatically. Mm -hmm. it's, it's also to think humanely, by the way, because obviously that's, that's in the morality at the, at the first uh, stage. But it also, it also has to do with that I'm motivated in all of this by wanting people to, to be in the best position, to be as happy and um, have as much of what they're entitled to in terms of rights and dignity and kindness as possible. 
Um, and I think that we're, everyone should have that. And there's, there's no upside to some people versus others mm-hmm. having more or less of it. I think mm-hmm. the ideal is obviously that we all treat each other well, that we all know how to do it, that we're all empowered to do it, that we're all motivated to do it, and mm-hmm. that we do it. Sure. But there is always power struggle. I mean, there are always uh, disagreements between groups that are only going to be resolved by the exertion to of To a certain influence. extent. A lot of, a lot of what we know from social psychological theory and research is that what looks like group level struggle is often a system level issue. Hmm. Um, it's true that there's always some, some degree. It's not the case that there is no resource competition. That's always going to be an issue and that's always going to be a factor in human interaction. But I don't think that that's enough to determine uh, intergroup conflict as a perpetual component of human society. Mm-hmm. Particularly not between you know, groups that are fixed as they are. It's one thing if, to say, you know, within a company you're going to have a couple of departments that are always trying to beat each other out for resources, or even departments within a university, or uh, you know, kind of groups that are context specific. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that we need to have these groups based on um, the characteristics that you know, some of which are are broadly uh, bases for for group formation um, or group determination throughout the world or throughout history, and in other cases that are much more fluid than we think, or you know where there's other issues in, in some places, sure. and they're they're seen as givens, and in other places they just don't factor in. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I want to touch on a couple of objections that have been frequently raised to JSBS, as you might imagine. The response to this article was prolific and widespread and emotionally charged, mm-hmm. um, which I think was in part by design. I'm sure Jade wanted yeah. to ruffle some feathers. And one of the objections, or one of the 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 common uh, lines uh, drawn against him by detractors, is that. Chait essentially is arguing that all of this newfangled social media, all of these new mechanisms of social conversation and moral judgment, that um, they are really upsetting and inconvenient and ought to just shut up and let the traditional centers of power uh, maintain their stranglehold on public discourse. And what are these traditional sources? Well, um, the New Republic, where Chait used to write, Mm -hmm. uh, major ideological publications. And so the argument goes that um, basically Chait is trying to silence minority voices, which have found in social media uh, ways of reaching the public and expressing uncomfortable, perhaps publicly uncomfortable ideas of uh, unearthing hidden prejudices, of uh, essentially of seizing some kind of political power for disenfranchised or disadvantaged communities, which otherwise would not be likely to be publishing essays in the New Republic. And, and so isn't there some danger in what Chait is saying here that Sort of the dialogue, right, that um, seems to lead to these conversations that Chait finds so upsetting is exactly the kind of dialogue that's needed in order to provide a platform for for people who otherwise don't have representation. I don't know. I, mean, I think, it, as I said, I think we'd be better off if people were saying something more like no than... But it's hard to say no if you don't have right, a mouthpiece. I, right. right. I don't see there being anything wrong with getting on Twitter to publicly, uh, you know, reinforce a, a moral norm. Mm-hmm. I think that's that seems like a good thing to me. So the medium itself doesn't seem to pose a problem as far as you're concerned. Um, I think the medium might pose a problem only insofar as it makes other uh, forms of communication or other more likely, particularly shaming and particularly, I mean, I think we get into like a, a, a mob mentality on mm-hmm. social media. Mm-hmm. 
not a... So the temptations are greater to fall into this kind of yeah. counterproductive... Uh, also because you get... I mean, there, there's, no, there's no human right there, so it's really easy to get all whipped up. You know, you just get into this um, back and forth where everyone escalates and people become mean, and there's actually I mean, it's the opposite of what we're going for here, where there's no reminder that what you're dealing with is another human mm -hmm. who has certain rights that you're motivated to respect because you have the same rights and you believe that all people have those rights and protecting those rights and respecting them and being good to each other is the point of all of this. Right. And I think that's easier to lose sight of on social media. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, I would not suggest uh, sh shutting it down or passing any kind of regulation okay. uh, as far as you know, what people can can post about I would encourage I would create I would encourage the creation of more norms um, about for example shaming or about you know and and ad hominem attacks and focusing on uh, the emotionality as opposed to the clear-cut morality of these issues because mm -hmm. I think those things are either depending on which of the ones I just mentioned, are either you know, counterproductive or immoral. Right. Um, but I don't think that, the, that what we need to do is, is take the tool away. That's a, I think that's a ludicrous so what, thing. So as participants in social media, what are we supposed to do? I mean, how can we uh, avoid wading into those tickets ourselves? Or how can we avoid... Um, I think you have to assume your ideology. Be clear about what it is. If you're not clear, put serious thought into it. Talk about it with people if that helps. Get comfortable. At least it's hopefully will continue to evolve throughout your life. But get comfortable with something you feel like you can stand behind, and then enforce it in a clear way that doesn't involve any elements of retribution. Um, obviously, your ideology may be different from mine, and it may involve retribution. I don't think it should. Mine doesn't. But um, particularly in these cases where people are tweeting for something, you know, on, on behalf of something because they think that something is good and there was a failure to do it, um, you know, even to, to treat people with respect to, mostly, mostly it has to do with, with respecting something, respecting someone's mm -hmm. life, respecting someone's right to, uh, to, to do something. Um, but whatever, whatever it is that you're tweeting on behalf of or to secure, keep a clear idea of be clear about when something is unacceptable and just call a spade a spade. Say it's unacceptable. Don't leave room for people to puncture what you're saying. Assume your position with strength. And that's it for the pilot episode of Inverse Converse. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, you'll find a link to Chait's full article on inverseconverse.com. I'm Ben Miller. My guest was Melanie Langer. And this episode was edited by Alita Cooper. Keep reading. Till next time.